I didn't get to hear Terry read it, but I'm very familiar with Isaiah 6. I, I love that passage of Scripture. And as Presbyterians, it really informs the way we do worship the call of Isaiah. For Isaiah encounters Almighty God, just the, just the robe of, in the temple, and he's so overwhelmed by God's holiness. He says, woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I, I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. One of the reasons we almost always have a prayer of confession is that as we come into the presence of Almighty God in corporate worship together, as we focus our hearts and minds on the holiness of God, we're reminded of our own sinfulness and our need for forgiveness. And so we have a corporate prayer of confession that, you, that you've already prayed, that we might pray together as one body. We don't, as Presbyterians, we don't feel like we have to go to a priest to confess our sins. We go straight to God and we do it together in corporate worship. As we read in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 to 9, that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. In corporate worship, we need to confess our sins to God as we come into the presence of a holy, powerful God. For as Jesus tells us in the gospel of Matthew chapter 18, verse 20, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Christ is present as the body of Christ comes together in corporate worship of him with one heart and one mind. Now, occasionally I hear people say to me, well, you know, I feel closest to God in, out in creation, out in the wilderness, or, or I feel closest to God, you know, on the golf course, you know, and so I don't always come to worship on Sundays, I've worshiped with God out there. I, I feel close to Jesus, but I don't really feel close to his church, you know, and, and I've been on the golf course, and I've heard Jesus mentioned a few times, but not in a way of reverence, got to be honest with you about that. Uh, I'll see a bad shot, and then all of a sudden I'll hear Jesus' name mentioned, I'm like, oh, are we having worship? I don't think so. I hate for the Bible to get in the way of our feelings. But the fact is, the Bible tells us that when we're closest to God, when we're connected to the body of Christ, his church. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that we are the body of Christ and Jesus is the head of that body. And all of us have different spiritual gifts and abilities and, and we're called to use them together. We really need each other. He, he goes on to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. We all need each other. And when you're not here in worship with us, we miss you. And you miss an opportunity to connect to Christ through his body. Now, in case you missed it, we're in the middle of a sermon series on our core four strategy of worship, grow, connect, and serve. And we believe that every disciple should worship God and should serve, as Orlando beautifully pointed out last week, you know, we need to move from the bib to the apron, right? And when you're, you wear a bib when you're a baby because it's all about you and what you can feed and what you can get and am I being fed. But we've got to move to the apron as adults, as those who mature. And unfortunately, though, many of us approach worship with a me sickness. We, we think it's all about me. We approach worship as, as babies wearing bibs saying, what can I get? Rather than thinking about what am I giving to God in our worship today? In our culture, most people worship the triune idol of me, myself, and I. And the fact is we do this because, well, we have a culture that supports that. I mean, when you're just a little child, you think it's all about you and me and my. In fact, mo all my children, uh, their first word was either mama or dada, but their third or fourth word was mine. I mean, they learned it quickly, mine. And if you're not sure about the doctrine of original sin, which talks about how the original sin of Adam and Eve has led us to inherit a sinful nature, 
that left our own is prone to sin? If you're not sure about that doctrine, if that's true or not, get two toddlers and one toy in one play space and see how that goes. In fact, I got a little video here of two twins with one toy. I just want to show you just to demonstrate what we're talking about today. you see that carjacking? We should call the police. That was horrible. My goodness. Wow. And those are twin sisters. I mean, they have the same DNA. By definition, they have the same DNA. And I don't care if you're my sister. You're not driving my car. Wow. We're like that though, right? It's all about me. It's all about mine. And we often approach worship with that same attitude. How did the worship make me feel? Did it make me feel good? Was the sermon funny? If you ever read the Sermon on the Mount, the most popular, most famous sermon ever written and spoken, Jesus said it, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Not funny. I mean, it's very serious. It's very challenging. It doesn't make you feel good. In fact, Jesus calls us out in the middle of it, and he says, you can't love both God and money. You're going to either love the one and serve it and deny the other, or you'll deny one and serve the other. You can't, you can't do both. And the fact is, what we worship ultimately determines how we live. If we worship money and we seek to find comfort in money and our identity is wrapped up in how much money we make, We're going to spend all of our energy and all of our effort and all of our time in making money. That's what it's going to all be about. But if we worship God and we seek to find our comfort and our sense of identity in who God is and who we are in relationship to God, then we're going to spend all of our time, talents, and treasures in seeking to bring glory and honor to God. It's what we worship and, and how we worship ultimately dictates how we live our lives. Presbyterian worship, which comes from the Reformed tradition, insists that we must worship God and God alone. The triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We don't pray to Mary, we don't pray to any other saints, we just pray to God. For us, worship is always about pleasing God. God is the audience in our worship. Yeah, Norman may play the organ and the choir may sing occasionally, but, but, but really, they're not the performers, we're all the performers. They're leading us in our performance of worship to God. And so the question we should ask of a worship service is not how did it make me feel, but was God glorified in that? Did I give my best to God today in my worship of him? In worship, we seek to do everything for the glory of God as our hearts and minds are focused on the triune God, ordered around the word of God, guided by his spirit. So how can we make sure that we have worship that honors God, that it's focused rightly on God? Well, to find out, open your Bibles, your pew Bibles, to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Verses 10, 4 to 5. 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning at verse 10. Before I read God's word, let's call upon his spirit again to guide us in the reading and the preaching of his holy word. Please join me as you pray. Gracious and loving God, we just pray that by your spirit you would continue to guide us and lead us in all truth, that by your spirit you would open our eyes to see what you want us to see and open our hearts to be transformed at the reading and preaching of your holy word. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your son's precious name we pray and all God's people said, amen. 2 Timothy chapter 3 beginning at verse 10. Listen to the word of the Lord. Paul writes, you, Timothy, however have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. 
my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, and knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. Timothy's mother and grandmother were both Jewish, so he was trained in the Old Testament, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming where people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Here ends the reading of God's word as the prophet Isaiah tells us the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In my humble opinion, I believe the greatest contribution that the Reformation made to the church, the global church, is the rediscovery of the Word of God. The Reformation which Presbyterians came out of was really led by Martin Luther. Martin Luther was an Augustinian monk and he was a scholar and a a professor of theology. And as he was reading through Romans, specifically Romans 1, 16 and 17, he realized that the Roman Catholic Church at the time had gotten away from the clear gospel of grace that Paul talks about throughout his letters. In fact, at that time, the Roman Catholic Church was charging indulgences, and they were giving you, if you gave money to help rebuild Peter's Basilica, they would offer you an indulgence. And according to the Roman Catholic Encyclopedia, an indulgence is a remission of temporal punishment due to sin. Well, as Martin Luther read the Bible, he could not see indulgences anywhere in there. And also, the idea of giving money to have your sins forgiven was completely sacrilegious. I mean, it was completely against the gospel of grace. And the gospel of grace tells us quite clearly that we're saved by grace. Grace is God's unmerited favor. We're saved not by what we do, but by what Jesus has done for us. For he who was without sin became sin for us, as Paul writes. Jesus lived in perfect obedience to our Heavenly Father, and then he died as the perfect sacrifice for our sins on the cross. As Jesus says in the Gospel of John, chapter 20, it is finished. There's nothing we can add to his grace. We simply receive it as the free gift that it is through faith. And so Martin Luther wrote the 95 Thesis on the doors of the uh, um, All Saints Church in Wittenberg with the hope of reforming the church. He ended up getting kicked out of the church. Uh, He started his own denomination, the Lutheran Church. And around this time, in 1530, a French lawyer named John Calvin uh, broke from the Roman Catholic Church as well, and he moved to Switzerland to become a part of the reform movement there. And when he was 27 years old, he wrote The Institutes of the Christian Religion, which is an amazing uh, volume set. And John Calvin was such a, a faithful student of God's Word, and as he read God's Word, he found consistently that in the book of Acts, when they would start a new church, Paul and Barnabas, they would entrust the leadership of that church to elders, or presbyteros in the Greek. And so he cited that the church ought to be led by elders, not by a pope, not by bishops or cardinals, but by elders. 
those elected from the body to help lead, those who are spiritually mature to help lead the local congregation. And so we get the Presbyterian Church. And about this time, providentially, the printing press was invented. And so with the invention of the printing press, the writings of the reformers like Martin Luther and John Calvin were able to be mass-produced, and, and people were reading them all over the place. And, and John Calvin's writings were very popular. The Institutes of the Christian Religion uh, particularly emphasized the five uh, solas or the five cries of the Reformation, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, scripture alone, and glory to God alone. We're saved by grace alone through faith in Christ alone. As we read in Ephesians chapter 2, 8, and 9, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. God's grace, as I shared, is is unmerited favor. It's a gift, and we simply receive it through faith. We receive Christ's sacrifice through faith. There's nothing we add to it. We just receive it as the gift that it is. It's by that faith that we're ultimately saved, not by our works, but by what Jesus has done for us. Then in gratitude for God's grace, in gratitude for what Jesus has done for us, we are moved to, to live to the glory of God alone. We want to bring glory to God in all that we say and do as we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 30. It's the Reformed worship was unique in that it focused on the triune God alone, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We never pray to the Virgin Mary or any of the other saints in the history of the church. We only pray to the triune God. And the Reformed worship was unique in that it was in the language of the people. At the time in the 16th century, the Roman Catholic Church had its mass all in Latin. And people weren't speaking Latin. They spoke German or French or even some English. You know, that, that's what people spoke. And so they'd go to this mass and they would, their heart might be with worship and with God, but their minds were not because they didn't know what the priest was saying or what he was doing. And so they said, let's put it in the language of the people. And they said also, you know, the people need a Bible they can read on their own. And so they began to translate the Bible from the Greek and the Hebrew to French, which people spoke and wrote, and, and to German and to in English so that people might have the word of God. So they might be discover that what God's word has to say, so they might know what it means to live to the glory of God, so they might know what it, how we can glorify God. Yes, scripture alone for us in the Reformed faith, scripture is our ultimate authority in faith and life. It's not the Pope or the church. If we want to know what God would have us do, we look to the Bible. We read the Bible, and the Bible, by the power of the Holy Spirit, will convict us of all truth and lead us to God's ways. Now, when Paul wrote his letter to Timothy, when he says all scripture, the New Testament had not yet been canonized yet. It still was being written. So when Paul says all scripture, he really means the Old Testament. Sure, parts of the New Testament had already been written, but he's really talking, and, he, and Paul did say, you know, my letter that I wrote to the Colossians, share that to the Laodiceans. I mean, you can read in his letters how he wants what he writes, knowing that it's been inspired by God to be shared with other churches. So people started to treat Paul's letters, in effect, as if they were scripture. And Peter references in one of his letters about how Paul's letters are, are like scripture. So there's that sense that the, the scriptures are still being added to, but, but really the emphasis is on the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, even Leviticus, inspired by God. I know when we read Leviticus, it's like, what? Can't understand it. And one of the reasons that we've been going through the story this last year, the, the Bible in narrative form, is so that we can go through the whole Bible and understand the story of the whole Bible so that in 2017, you can read the entire Bible, every verse on your own, and understand how it all fits together. Because we really can't understand the cross of Christ apart from Leviticus and the Day of Atonement that we find in Leviticus 16. The second most important commandment is is in Leviticus chapter 19, love your neighbor 
as yourself. Yes, all scripture is God-breathed. And it's ultimately the, the scriptures that transform our lives. And so, and so in worship, we, we gather and we order our whole service around the word of God. And the Reformed faith, scripture saturates, saturates our service of worship. You, you began the service with a reading, a reflective reading from the Psalms. And of course, then we had a reading from the Old Testament, a reading from the New Testament. And John Calvin used to insist that the people would sing only the Psalms. He took the Psalms and he put it to music. And if you look at our hymnal, you'll notice that every hymnal, every hymn I've seen in here has a verse of scripture that inspired it. One of the great ways to learn the truth of scripture is, is through singing. And so the reformers have always emphasized the importance of gathering around the word of God so that we might hear it together so that everything we do might be in glory and honor to God. And Calvin was also committed that the whole thing needed to be read. The whole thing needed to be studied. John Calvin actually uh, would preach through a whole book of the Bible. He didn't do thematic sermon series like I'm doing right now. He would preach through the whole Bible. And so he would preach Romans 1, 2, 3, 4, all the way to 16. Preach through the whole thing. And, and if you notice, we do that a lot here as well, kind of following that pattern. We preached through Ephesians a couple summers ago, Philippians last summer. We, we've preached through uh, you know, James, and we've preached through Galatians, and we've we preached through Matthew 1 to 7, and, and we preached through Romans 1 to 8. Because when you preach through books of the Bible that way, you have to hit the verses you don't like. And they make us wrestle from the inside. And that's ultimately what transforms our lives. It's in the Reformed faith, we believe that all Scripture is God-breathed. And so not only do we order the service around the Word of God and saturate it with Scripture, but we go through the Word of God as a community together. Several years ago, um, there was a, a young man in our church who was frustrated with a sermon I had preached on the genealogy of Jesus that's in Matthew 1. And he said to me, why are you preaching on the genealogy of Jesus? Who needs all that history? I need sermons that tell me how to be a better husband and a better father and a better coworker. I don't need sermons about history and the genealogy of Jesus. And I said, well, I preach that because it's in the Bible. But uh, I also preach that because I don't think we can understand the Bible apart from the history. And I said, my goal and desire is to preach through the Sermon on the Mount, 5, 6, and 7. But before I get there, there's Matthew 1, 2, 3, and 4 that we need to read and discuss in order to understand the context of the Sermon on the Mount. I believe we've got to hear the whole counsel of God, not just the verses that we like. If I did a 12-week sermon series on marriage, for instance, and I know a lot of churches do this, but if I did a 12-week sermon series on marriage, just as a former singles pastor, I want you to know this. Any large city, half of the people are single. The divorce rate at 50% today, half of the people are single. If you spent 12 weeks on marriage, you're missing half of your demographic, Okay. But if I did 12 weeks on marriage, I would pick and choose which verses I wanted to hit on marriage. And I'd find the verses that I like and maybe ignore the ones I don't want to talk about. But when we preach through Romans 1 to 8 or when we preach through Jonah or Galatians or Philippians or James, we can't skip a verse. We've got to address all of it because all Scripture is God-breathed. Several years ago, Willow Creek Church in Chicago, one of the largest megachurches in our country, it's like third in size. It has 26,000 people every Sunday in worship, 26,000 people. We could not fit 26,000 people. That'd be amazing. 26,000 people in worship every Sunday. They were growing in budget, and they were growing in membership, and they were growing in, in, in uh, baptisms, and everything was going so well, or so it seemed. But the senior leadership of Willow Creek had, had a troubled spirit, and they said, you know, we should survey our people to find out if they're growing spiritually before we go to the next stage of this building campaign. So they sent out this survey to all their people, and to their dismay, and they asked two basic questions. That basically drove the survey. Have you grown more in love with God, 
And have you grown more in love with your neighbor in the last year? And those are good questions because that's basically the two most important commandments in all the Bible according to Jesus in Matthew 22. Grown more in love with God. Do you love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, the Shema? And do you love your neighbor as yourself, Leviticus 19? Have you grown more in love with God? Have you grown more in love with your neighbor in the last year? Would you, how would you answer that? Would you say yes? When I surveyed Willow Creek's church of 26,000 people, 90% of the people, a little over 90% said no. I haven't grown more in love with God and I haven't grown more in love with my neighbor. Willow Creek was devastated by this news and so they actually shared the survey with over 1,000 churches representing 250,000 people. And all these people were surveyed and asked, have you grown more in love with God? And have you grown more in love with your neighbor? And these are churches that are growing with membership and attendance and all this great stuff. Over 90% of people say no. But what was most interesting was that roughly 10% who said yes, all of them were reading this daily. If you haven't felt like you've grown more in love with God or you haven't felt like you've grown more in love with your neighbor, first I would ask you, how much time have you been in worship? Have you been here on Sunday mornings? Because when you're not here, we miss you. And you miss an opportunity to connect to the body of Christ as we gather together around the word of God. And are you reading this daily? Are you spending the time you need to be in God's word? I didn't need to survey 250,000 people to find out what helps us grow spiritually. I simply needed to read 2 Timothy, where the apostle Paul tells us all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Don't make any mistake. We worship God, but we worship God of the Bible. And we know that we can't really know God apart from his word. And so every Sunday we gather around God's word to explain and to teach God's word, to understand it better so that we might live it out. But we also have to spend time each and every day. Worship isn't restricted to Sundays. It's a daily activity. And we won't know how to really glorify God apart from his word. So may we spend the time we need in his word each and every day. Please join me as you pray. Gracious and loving God, I thank you for the earlier reformers like Martin.